Consider God enabled the flood of Noah to wipe out the pervasive evil brought on by Satan's army of offspring Nephilim giants. But yet somehow, the Old Testament is filled with countless records of these mutant giants in the days of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, King David, and many others well after the flood. If the Nephilim perished in the flood, how then did they return to the earth afterwards? There is no mention in Scripture of any sexual improprieties from the sons of God post-flood. Join us now as we reveal Scriptures that offer accounts as to what happened in regard to the Nephilim and why God instructed the Hebrews to utterly destroy every aspect. As always, just my opinion. Good day, everyone. Hi, this is Mark Russick. You're listening to the Russick Outlook. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are continuing looking into the flood of Noah. The past couple of broadcasts, uh, we looked at the evidence for that, that the the flood actually did take place and, and, and the many uh, detailed corroborations from many different cultures outside of the Bible that bear that out, as well as some of the evidence that, that we see uh, around us today. Um, but we, we kind of, our concentration, I should say, has been on Genesis 6 and what's known as the Nephilim giants, for those who may not be familiar or possibly didn't uh, hear these past couple of broadcasts. These, uh, if you look at uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6, um, these are offspring, they're, they're giants uh, that, that were uh, the result of fallen angels uh, that were in allegiance with Lucifer, and they had intercourse with human women. And it sounds kind of uh, outlandish, I know, but if you look at Genesis chapter 6, it bears this out. And when you hear the term Nephilim uh, giants or Nephilim, that, that refers to this offspring, what I would say is a mutant offspring of part angelic being and part man uh, as a result of this. So, you know, we, we looked at that, and then uh, for a lot of people, they felt or, or understood that the f- flood of Noah were to wipe out these giants. And then I gave in the past broadcast uh, so many different examples that we see throughout the Old Testament of the giants, and they were prevalent from the days of Abraham to Joshua and Moses and, and King David and so forth. Uh, so, I, you know, we, we broke that down. Now I wanted to flip back. I want to look a little bit before the flood, what actually happened. And there's not a lot of information that Scripture can bear out. So we're going to take a little bit of a different tact. Uh, uh, we are certainly going to be looking at, at Scripture, but I'm going to be looking at three books in particular that uh, bear witness to Scripture, and, and in some cases, and in some uh, churches, some denominations, some cultures, uh, these books are actually considered to be canon, or uh, that canonized, I should say, where they deem them worthy to be Scripture. I am talking about the book of Jasher, uh, the book of Jubilee, and the book of Enoch, so we will be looking at those uh, I by no means am insinuating that this is Scripture, this is the Word of God, but I, I found an incredible degree of harmonization that lines up with the Word of God. So I wanted to look at that because I think, at the very least, uh, it, it, it's an interesting read, it's an interesting uh, uh, account or an interesting view, I should say, maybe, to look at and to consider. Um, and I'm going to give you a lot of good reasons why uh, that there could be credence here, and at the very least, 
like I said, that, you know, this, this should be something to ponder or something to be put into the uh, equation of, of, of rational thought. Uh, as, as always, it, you know, if you appreciate and you like subjects like this and you like our approach, please hit the like or subscribe button, ring the bell uh, on the various uh, social media platforms. And we have a YouTube video channel. Um, and, and, you know, we're on all the different podcast platforms as well as Instagram and Facebook and so forth. It really just helps us get the information out there uh, and, and to share it, to share it with people who may not believe the Bible or they are skeptical. They're sitting on the fence. They're not really quite sure, uh, as well as giving information to Christians and, 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 and others who, uh, you know, give them some things to think about. Maybe they hadn't considered uh you know, some additional evidence, I'll say. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of, you know, the approach that we're taking. This is called the antediluvian period, what I'm titling Life Before the Flood. And, and I think it's going to be a very, very interesting read uh, or a very uh, thoughtful um, uh, approach. I, 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 at least I hope so. So let me just lay something out that I'm going to give you some historical and archaeological corroboration outside of the Bible. And I did this when I was investigating the, the life, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, looking at it from sources outside of the Bible. And this is considered to be very, very credible by anyone's account, whether you're a believer or not today. So, you know, we looked at Cornelius Tacticus, uh, Flavius Josephus, a Jewish, very famous, uh, credible Jewish historian, Pliny the Younger, uh, Suetonius, um, there was Lucian uh, of, of Samosota, as, as well as some rabbis that can be found in the uh, Babylonian Talmud in the Sanhedrin, uh, shortly, maybe 40, 50 years after the life of Jesus. And all of these things to say that this is considered a very credible approach. Let's look at things outside of the Bible. And since you don't have these type of records around the time of the flood or before the flood, but you, we do have some accounts uh, for the three books you know, that I mentioned, that's, that's the approach I want to take. So I think there's a fair comparison. I just wanted to kind of lay this out and, you know, for those who may not believe or are skeptical about Jesus, you know, these are some other things that you can look at. If you're following on video, I, I highlighted some some of the more famous quotes. Uh, but, but, you know, the reason that I wanted to bring this up is to give you a comparison. Okay, so now we get to the three books, the book of Jasher, Enoch, and Jubilee. Uh, first, looking at, at, at Jasher, it is a the lost book of Israelite poetry. It's quoted at least twice in the Old Testament in Joshua 10, 12 through 13, 2 Samuel 1 through 19. It means uh, um, righteous or upright. Uh, let me quote, uh, or let me read for you Joshua 10, 12 through 13. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said to the side of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Side note, their enemies in this case were Nephilim giants. Uh, and then it goes on to say, is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. So that's Joshua 10, 
12 through 13, 2 Samuel 1, 18. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, is it not written in the book of Jasher? So clearly, uh, these Old Testament writers were very familiar with the book of Jasher. Uh, they, they, you know, obviously felt a, a degree of credibility where they reference it here. Jumping over to Enoch. Uh, Enoch, we, we see that he walked with the Lord. He was bestowed upon a great deal of wisdom. We can see that in Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Uh, and then and he wrote several uh, different books, which, uh, you know, some have compiled it together, but it's considered first and second Enoch. Um, and you can find those books today. Um, but at any rate, I, w- I wanted to point out uh, not, not only some, some interesting information about the book of Enoch, and we're going to be referencing this, but also how this is uh, quoted or referenced in the New Testament, Jude uh, chapter 1, verses 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. So if I, you know, you know, there you see Jude was very familiar with the book of Enoch, and he quoted it. So you, there's, there's got to be something there to it. Let, let's put it that way. Uh, Hebrews 11.5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he, he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. He walked with God. He was pleased God. Some other interesting footnotes. The Ethiopians uh, view this, uh, the book of Enoch, to be part of their Bible, part of their canon. And uh, it was also found in, or fragments of it were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is where uh, many, uh, uh, most of the Old Testament has found and gained a, a amazing degree of of harmonization with what we read today. I believe the only ones that we don't see in there is uh, Ruth and the Book of Lamentations. So, you know, all that to say, the the tribes that were translating the Old Testament in the degree that they treated uh, the reverence, that they treated the Word of God, they also felt that same reverence, obviously, because we see the Book of Enoch as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, Side note, um, I just want to give you an overview. First, Enoch resembles certain Old Testament books in form and thought, and it may have influenced the authors of the New Testament. And, you know, I, I gave you an example there. Uh, it says here, um, first, Enoch seems to have especially influenced early Christian understanding of angels and the phrase son of man. And first, Enoch is quoted as, as we did, uh, referenced uh, the book of Jude earlier. The book also seems to have been popular in Judaism and Christianity during the centuries immediately preceding and following the birth of Jesus. First Enoch provides a very detailed picture of the biblical world of this period, especially with regard to theology. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount of information and a high regard for the book of Enoch. And I just wanted to kind of plant that and, and, and put that out there. So Jasher and, and Enoch. Let me jump over to the book of Jubilees. This is a 2nd century B.C. rewriting of the biblical narrative from Genesis 1 to Exodus 16. Uh, The book is another canonized book for the Ethiopian church. It's part of their Bible. Uh, The goal of Jubilees appears to be to show principles of the law that go back to very ancient times. It also ensures that holy days are observed according to the calendar, and it exhorts readers to live according to the law. 
The idea is that many of the commandments of the law of Moses uh, going back to all the way back to Eden, and I give you some of the references here on video in Jubilees uh, 2 and, and 3. It argues that Noah and the patriarchs obeyed certain commandments and celebrated the feasts of the Lord, though some of them were forgotten until Moses gave the law at Sinai. Uh, it also seems to explain difficult aspects of biblical test. For example, Adam was told that in the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Many obviously very familiar with that scripture in Genesis 2.17, yet he lived for centuries. Jubilees 4.29-30 20, explains that Adam lived not only 930, lived not only 930 years. Since a thousand years is like a day in the testimony of heaven, he did not complete the years of his day. So he's trying to give explanation that the way Adam was created and the way man was first created by God, that sin cut that life short. Sin, sin tainted everything. Uh, the, some of the other interesting aspects about the book of Jubilees, uh, it notates the importance of the calendar and the festivals and the feasts of the Lord. Uh, Jubilees going according to the land, and we know that you know uh, every 50 years in, in, in the book, uh, that it celebrates the land, but also in the seventh year that uh, that the land will rest. And then you have the seven sevens, which equals uh, Jubilee. Uh, it, it shows us a lot about um, eschatology, idolatry, angels, Satan, the demons, et cetera, et cetera. So in light of these comparisons, especially in the first and the second, the New Testament authors may have been familiar with the book of Jubilees. And why do we say that? Because uh, the law being given by angels, uh, and, and we see that in verse 27 through 28, and we compare that to the book of Acts in 7.53 and Galatians 3.19. So there's those comparisons in, in the New Testament to what we read in the book of Jubilee. Uh, it looks forward to a new heaven and a new earth, what, chapter 129. We compare that to Second Peter 3.13. Peter certainly talks about the new heaven and the new earth. A thousand years being like a day, we just referenced that. So, you know, again, we're seeing some harmony with the New Testament to the book of Jubilee here. So, you know, all of that to say that we would be foolish not to look at these three books. And I hope I just planted a little bit of a bit of a foundation for you. So now I would like to show you the harmonization of these texts as it pertains to uh, Genesis chapter 6, which is really where our focus is on, and then some of the new information that that would present. So again, I'm going to read Genesis uh, 6, 1 through 2, or uh, let me concentrate on verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took their wives as they chose. Sons of God, again, these are the fallen angels of Lucifer, and it says, they saw that the women were attractive and they took their wives as they chose. Enoch 6, uh, and it says, uh, and the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. So there you see, not only that does it agree with Genesis 6, but it goes on to further say, that the intention and the motivation was to beget us children. Why? Because we're, it's about the bloodline. It's about tainting the bloodline, as, you know, as, as I've uh, covered earlier. Jubilee, chapter 5, verse 1. The angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee 
that they were beautiful to look on, and they took themselves wives of all whom they chose, and they bare unto them sons that were giants. Again, you know, there, there, there's nothing there that doesn't line up with what we saw in Scripture. Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, for many, this is a side note, obviously it wasn't part of the, the, the three books, but I did want to bring this out. Uh, for many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust, despisers of all that was good, an account of the confidence that they had in their own strength. So, you know, alluding to these giants. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. And, you know, we, we, you know you, if you go back to, the, you know, all of the, the, the Greek mythology, and we've, I personally believe that this is where some of this came from. Um, I'm going to read now some of the uh, New Testament writers. I'm going to quote Jude again here. Uh, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept cha- in eternal chains until, uh, I'm sorry, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And we'll, and we'll cover that a little bit uh, shortly. But again, and the angels who did not stay within their own position, so they were cast out of heaven, but here they did something else. They, they left and they, uh, they, they took upon them. They basically raped these women. Second um, Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So this just gives you two New Testament accounts of these fallen angels, what they did, and the judgment that God rendered on them. Jubilees 5 through 6. And he gave commandments to root them out of their dominion. He bade, bade us to bind them in the depths of the earth, and behold, they are bound in the midst of them, middle of the earth, and kept separate. So this goes back to Tartarus and the abyss, and, and we'll get into that very shortly. And, I've, you know, we've covered a lot of that. But my point here is you see an amazing degree of symmetry with the Word of God. I'm not saying that these books are to be considered Scripture. But I, I am saying that they harmonize very well. I don't see any, you know, things that leap out and say, oh, that doesn't line up with the Word of God. It, in fact, does line up with the Word. So I'm going to reference what, I, what uh, I, I've been looking at all along in this series, Genesis 6, 5 through 18. So if you're following me on, the, on, the, on video, I've highlighted these different scriptures that line up with these different books. So I'm not going to break everything down, but Genesis 6, 5 through 7 shows how God feels about the resulting violence. And you can see this in Enoch uh, 7, 3 through 7, Jubilees 5 through 24. Genesis 6, 8 through 10, it reveals how Noah and his sons were genetically pure. And, you know, we've covered this before um, and that possibly one of the wives was not. Jasher 4, 12 through 15, 5, 13 through 17, and Jubilee 5, 5. So all of these books lining up with these portions of Scripture. Genesis 6, 11 through 12, earth and all the flesh became corrupt. We can see that in Jasher 4, 16 and Jubilees 5, 19. Genesis 6, 13 through 17, God grows increasingly angry and tells Noah to build the ark, and he gives them the exact specifications on how to do it. Interestingly enough, we see this in Jasher 4:19 through 21, 5:25 through 29, and Jubilees 5:21 through 22. 
Genesis 6.18, that's where we get the mention of the wives of Noah's sons. And this is where we find in Jasher that Noah chose these three wives, supposedly, I'm just going to say that supposedly, seven days before the flood. But that would give you some, uh, um, some very interesting considerations based upon what we covered in the previous uh, uh, broadcast where we talked about the giants after the flood, how they were on the earth after the flood. So I want to talk about some interesting, additional interesting quotes um, in, in Enoch. And Enoch is probably the most famous of these three books. And again, you know, it has a lot of credibility, so much so that the Ethiopian church, and I'm sure that there are others, considers this to be scripture. I personally don't. It's not a canonized book. But again, I, I just, uh, I think it's very interesting to look at. And if I find or if I see something that would, doesn't line up with Scripture, I'm going to toss it. But I, I, I want to point out some things here about God's judgment against these angels. And so I'm reading uh, Enoch chapter 10, and to destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers. The watchers were also called the fallen angels. These were some of the ones who were watchers, and this is so. These are part of Satan's or Lucifer's uh, legion uh, or, or, or core group, if you will. Um, so the children of the watchers from amongst men, and to send them one against the other, that they may destroy each other in battle. So here he's saying you're going to take these Nephilim giants, these children of the watchers, these children of the, of the sons of God, and he wants them to do battle. This is what, this is what the book of Enoch is saying. Uh, For length of days shall they not have, and no request that they, meaning their fathers, make of thee shall be granted to the fathers on their behalf, for they hope to live an eternal life, that each one of them will live 500 years." So there, according to the book of Enoch, the Lord has, has given them a sentence of 500 years, and that's it. Then, then it's over. So for whatever reason, I, I, I'm not sure you know, why that, that number was chosen, but I'm, I'm just referencing and quoting the book of Enoch. And, then it, and the Lord said to Michael, the archangel, go, bind Semjaza. Now, Semjaza, according to Enoch, is the chief, uh, one of the chief angels, and is this and go bind Semjaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanliness. And when their sons, this is the Nephilim, have slain one another, they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of judgment and the end of consummation until the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. So, uh, basically, you know, the Lord is allowing these Nephilim to go at one another, and part of the punishment is for that these angels are watching their offspring kill one another, and at which point, after the 500 years, they are sentenced, they are given their sentence, which we know, you can go back to Jude and, and, uh, and Peter, you know, to bear that out. So, you know, I, I, obviously we can't swear to this, but this is the account of Enoch. Then I found something else interesting here. Do angels tremble against the judgments of God? 
So I'm going to read uh, Enoch 6, 1 through 4. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Okay, that all lines up with Scripture. Nothing nothing new there. Then it goes on to say, And Semjaza, who we just referenced, who is their leader, said to them, I fear you will not agree to this deed, and I alone will have to pay the penalty of this great sin. So there was saying Semjaza is aware that the Lord uh, um, w- would, would cast judgment on them, and he's saying to these this group that, you know, I'm, I, I'm afraid that you won't come with me, that you will not fulfill this, that I will be doing this on my own. Jumping to Enoch 13, 3 through 5. Then I went and spoke to them all together. This is Enoch. And they were all afraid and fear and trembling. So there was some type of relationship that Enoch had in the sense that he saw them and spoke to them and communicated with them. You know, whether you want to believe that or not, that's entirely up to you. But I, you know, I find it interesting. And we, and we know that Enoch was wise and had favor with the Lord. And they besought me to draw up a petition for them that they might find forgiveness and to read their petition in the presence of the Lord of heaven, from whom thenceforth they could speak with him nor lift up their eyes to heaven for the shame of their sins, which they had been condemned. So they're appealing to Enoch to please go to the Lord on their behalf. Uh, you know, that, that they are afraid of their sentence. And, you know, they realized and they knew that they had done wrong in the sight of the Lord, even more wrong than, than the first rebellion. Um, then I'm just going to give you some of the highlights of what, I, what, what, what I'm reading here with Enoch uh, chapter 68. The power of the Spirit, I'm sorry, and on that day, Michael answered Raphael. So we're talking about the good angels. The power of the Spirit transports and makes me to tremble because of the severity of the judgments of the secrets, the judgments of the angels who can endure the severe judgment which has been executed and before which they melt away. And Michael answered again and said to Raphael, who is he whose heart is not softened concerning it, whose reins are not troubled by this word of judgment? So clearly not only were the fallen angels troubled, but the judgment of God uh, made even, you know, Michael and Raphael tremble, excuse me, according to Enoch here. Uh, Then it just goes on and closes out, for neither man nor angel shall have this portion in it, but alone that they have received their judgment forever and ever. Michael prophesies that no other angel shall come upon them. So, so pretty lofty stuff. So, Clearly, you know, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of judgment, and we see here that these angels fear the judgment of the Lord and recognize the severity and, and the, the significance, if you will, of this. So I just wanted to bring that out because of what I'm about to also show you in this next slide. This is a brief timeline, and if you're looking at me, uh, looking at me, I'm sorry, if you're looking at the video Thank God you're looking at the video and not me. I have a, f- a voice for radio, is it? No, a face for radio. That's the word. Uh, and hopefully a voice. So at any rate, I'm going from creation on the left-hand side uh, and then just giving you a brief timeline. We know that creation was roughly 4040 BC, and I've covered that why, as to why. 
And we know that that following that creation was sin and the death sentence of uh, of Satan from Genesis three fifteen. Then you had the uh, uh, the Nephilim, the 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 Watchers come down and have uh, um, sexual relations with with the women. Then, if you're considering what we just read in uh, Enoch, the wars of the Nephilim giants. So we know that that ended, uh, that I should say that the Nephilim started right around 3,500 and it was a 500 year war. And that's, that's where they ended. So right around roughly that time, I'm just throwing it out, it was around 3,050 BC. And that is where potentially you would have had the cast of these fallen angels sentenced to Tartarus and that's where that red arrow goes. And you can reference that from Second Peter and Jude. So, you know, that we know happened. That we know was the sentence. It's only according to Enoch that we have this information about the war and the end of, of the Nephilim uh, at, at that point of which we know. Then I just wanted to, you know, so then I, you know, cover that to the right. I give you when the flood started, then Abraham uh, Moses, and, and, and I give you the reference of David and Goliath or the life of, of King David. What I would like to stop here for, we know that 2439 began the approximation of the 80 years um, where Noah was building the ark, and then the, the flood came at uh, 2348. I'm, I'm sorry, that, that's right, that's right. So I wanted to read from Genesis 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. So there's a kind of a bone of contention afterward. A lot of people will come from um, the belief that not only will it, uh, were those Nephilim there before the flood, meaning afterwards is after the flood. However, there are some that would say it really means after uh, the, 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 the war. So, and also afterward, does that mean that after the war of the Nephilim, or does that mean after the flood? I'm just pointing it out because those are the two trains of thought, which is why I give you these arrows. And does it mean to the left uh, of the ark, or does it mean post-flood, you know, and, and so forth? So I just wanted to paint that out because there's, there's two trains of thought. I think both are interesting. Both are, are, are possible. I personally, you know, I can't come to a conclusion um, you know, if I'm just going to reference it on scripture, then, then I, I, I have to think that this would mean beforehand, uh, because again, we don't have any accounts, um, as to what these sexual relations would have been afterwards. I gave you some things of, of how that offspring could have been carried in the previous broadcast with the wives of Noah. A lot of this information, you know, it may sound outlandish, but if you just stop and slowly think about it, um, it's, it's, it's very, very logical to, to understand. I also, on this, you know, I give you the, the, uh, what I'm calling danger signs, meaning throughout history at these points from 3050 BC to the time of David, we, we have plenty of accounts of Nephilim giants, plenty of biblical accounts. So the giants were there in this period. It's, you know, that information, uh, really what we're trying to dis discern is whether the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, whether that meant 
after the war of the, of the Nephilim or after the flood. But just to kind of give you a brief timeline and then, you know, the instructions were for these Israelites, and you see this throughout the Old Testament, to completely wipe out these Nephilim tribes. Winding down here, I, I, I want to go back to Enoch to something what I find very interesting my, my, myself concerning what happens when these Nephilim die. So I'm reading the book of Enoch, chapter 15. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits of flesh, they shall be called evil spirits on the earth, and the earth will be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers in the beginning as their primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits they shall be called. As for the spirits of heaven, and heaven shall be their dwelling, but as the spirits of the earth which were born on the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They have found no food, but nonetheless hunger and thirst and cause offenses. These spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women because they have proceeded from them. So really what this, what this is saying is the spirits, once these Nephilim died, their spirits go forth. They have no place to go. They roam the earth. And, and this is really what, what, what Enoch is saying. So I would bring you to the top left for a second. Where do evil spirits come from? They're neither angels nor men, you know, according to this, perhaps roaming spirits from giants of old. They are not the angels, uh, they are not angels or men because they do not go to Sheol, Hades, but they're stuck in the in-between. So, uh, I, I, I've, I've shown you, you know, I, I, the, you know Abraham's bosom, you know, the account of the rich man, going down to Sheol uh, and, and, or Hades in Greek. And, I, you know, I've, I've gone through this. I've covered for this in the past. This is where any of the Old Testament uh, um, spirits would go when they die. They would either go on to the left side where you see the tree, what is referenced as paradise or the bosom of Abraham, or to the right side, the place of torment. They can see one another. They can feel. They can remember. So, you know, you have all these things. But this is for man. This is a place for man. This is not a place for a demonic angel. It was not created for a demonic angel, and it was not created for man. So where, what happens to these spirits that are half man or, and, and half uh, angel or, or, or half demon? I'm going to jump up to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers, and present darkness, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. So the Apostle Paul is, is giving us, and for many, you know, they know that scripture. It's a very famous scripture. That's, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, powers, principalities, spirits. Where do these spirits come from? And, you know, I, I, I can't say for sure, but... I just want to give you the reference of the three places that we know about, which is Sheol, Hades, uh, the Lake of Fire, the permanent place of the dead, which is, uh, you know, um, where Satan will eventually land, um, and do they go to the abyss? So, 
interestingly enough, if you know, I, I we can't say for sure, but the if if I look at Luke eight twenty six through thirty two, where that's where Jesus cast that demon out, the one who you know, could break chains and whatnot. And, you know, they say to him, or he says, what is your name? And they say legion, because there are many in us, uh, um, which could be mean as many as 600. Um, he casts them out, but they say to him, please do not send us to the abyss or to to the lower depths, depending upon the translation. I know the new King James would use the word abyss. So there, are, there, there is a belief that you have the abyss, and then there's the chains, and even a lower darkness of Tartarus, which is where the fallen angels are. And again, I've kind of drawn this out for you on video, so hopefully it'll give you a little bit of a visual. I, I, I don't know the answer, um, but, but it, it is interesting that the Nephilim were there. Where do those spirits go? And do they actually go to the abyss? I, I, I don't know. And I can't find a clear answer. I've researched this a lot. Um, and, and there's a lot of people, you know, they're, they're both, there's two schools of thought that they wind up in the abyss because that we know through Revelation that that would open up. Um, but Tartarus, you know, a lot of these are bound until a certain time, you know, again, going back to Revelation. But clearly these demonic spirits were aware of the abyss and they begged Jesus not to send them. And I'm going to give you uh, Luke 8, 26 through 32. It's also uh, the same account as in uh, Matthew chapter five. So those are some things to consider. What happens to those Nephilim once they die? Where do those spirits go? Because again, man was created uh, God created man, God created the angels, but God did not create these Nephilim. These were the product of the unclean angels or the fallen angels. So let me just close with this. I, I, I just wanted to bring this out because the answer is really found for us today with Holy Spirit. And I'm talking about the gifts of the Spirit and the discerning of spirits. So I'm not going to necessarily go into what is the discerning of spirits. You can look it up plenty of information on that, but it is a gift. What I found uh, very telling uh, to me, and I, and I thought it was worth, it, it just struck me, it, it struck me at my core. Harold Horton in 1934 wrote the following, the very existence of this gift proves the presence, the, the present reality of evil spirits. They are wrecking and torturing human beings as cruelly as in the Lord's day. At the very foot of the mountain of the Lord's glory, they are still throwing men into water, into the fire, and over bridges, and under trains, into gas-filled rooms. Dare we come down from the peaks of selfish blessing and spiritual exaltation and seek earnestly such gifts that they would liberate the enslaved from the devil's malign power, the tormented from whom Christ died. Is it fear, unbelief, or the desire for ease in Zion that holds Christendom in the comfortable shelter of its hilltop tabernacles. I, I just felt that to be very compelling. We know evil spirits around today, you know, just think of suicide, young girls cutting themselves, uh, just, and, and I personally believe that you would find many of these in different psych wards and institutions, that there's a, there's a, uh, there's a mission field there if we were operating in the gifts of the Spirit, and I recognize that, you know, it's for some people, 
but the discerning of spirits is clearly been given as a gift of the Holy Spirit for this purpose. So I know that was a side note to close, but I think it's a good note to close on to consider that we have given, we have been given the power or the authority by Jesus to cast out demons and uh, to do so be, with our relationship with Jesus, but also with the power of the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to close on that note. I know it was a, it was an odd way, but I, I, again, you know, nothing new under the sun. So what we saw in the days of Enoch and before and the antediluvian period, we see even here today at 2021. So thank you again, as always, for joining us. Hopefully this gave you some things to think about. I recognize that this was a little bit of a different uh, detour, if you will, looking at these other three books outside of Scripture. But I, I, I hope you understood or felt as I did that there's a more than a fair degree of harmony and, and reasoning to consider these books as somewhat credible sources. Any questions, comments, always shoot me an email, russicoutlook at gmail.com. Until the next time, thanks as always, and remember... Just my opinion.